All right, again, we're glad you're here this morning for a special Sunday. We're in the midst of a series, actually right in the middle of a series. We're calling Embrace the Mission. And we're looking at four or five core values that we have as a church we're trying to build up this year. And one of those things, we've had a chance, we've had a privilege to serve alongside of the group that's here this morning. Basically, going back almost seven years ago, I was new. Richpoint Church looked very different. In fact, one of the presenters here this morning uh, is Tim Collins, which we'll introduce in a second. And, and he was the pastor of the church, and, and Chris and I were new on staff. In fact, probably the first two or three weeks we were here, uh, Tim and, and Brett Durbin, who's also here, started to converse. And, and probably the first two or three weeks we were here, we met with Brett Durbin uh, to begin hearing the, the overall vision of Trash Mountain Project, really before even a lot of what is happening today was taking place. And we had a chance to hear and to see the overall mission of what they're trying to accomplish. And that year, we said, we're going to go and we're going to help people out in the trash dump. We're going to build a couple of homes in Honduras and and rescue some families. And started a partnership where I think up to this point, we've taken, I think, five trips to Honduras. And as a church, Ridgepoint Church has built nine homes in Honduras. But the thing that I love is not just the overall. I love the vision of what they're trying to accomplish. But even more so, I love the people that we partner with. Uh, Tim, I got a chance to meet Tim for the first time when we were in college. And I was a new believer going to Christian college, and I knew nothing at all about church and, and the church world and all of that. And, and Tim had grown up a little more going to church, and he kind of took me under his wing and started to invest in me uh, as, as a young college student. And even a couple of years later, we kind of had lunches together and kind of shared an overall vision. A couple of years later, he came to me and said, hey, what if you came on staff? And he took a chance with me coming here at Ridgepoint Church, and I'm forever indebted to him for all that he did pouring into me as a, as a young student. And then right as I began here to meet Brett and to hear his heart and to hear his vision, and then a couple of years later on our second trip to Honduras, we're staying at the hotel there in Honduras, and we're sitting to have a small pool there, and we're sitting kind of poolside, kind of have this conversation late at night a couple of times that week. And, and just to hear his, his overall heart and the integrity that he has in ministry was so powerful. So I'm so excited this morning to share the stage with both of these guys. If you would, give a big Rich Point Church welcome. Brett's coming up first, then Tim, but welcome, Brett. Yeah, when you uh, come down from Kansas, you expect a little warmer weather, so I'm not sure what you people are doing down here, but um, but no, it's, it's great to be down here, and honestly, it kind of feels like a bit of a uh, Trash Mountain family reunion for us. Um, uh, Michael Barrett, who was one of the co-founders uh, with my wife and I uh, of Trash Mountain, uh, he's here and was just such an integral part of that, and then my mother-in-law's here, who obviously, you know, she takes care of our 27 kids, and we go do this kind of stuff, and <laughs> And uh, also John DeMeo uh, and his wife are here. He was our first staff person. And, and Ridgepoint uh, was the first church to take a chance on Trash Mountain. You know, it really was just a, an idea at that point. Um, we had a video that Michael had done, and we were showing it, and the response was so big from that story that we moved forward and, and formed this, this ministry. And, and uh, this was the first church to say yes. You know, I don't know if that was... Um, with wisdom or if it was just a response because we really didn't even know what we were doing at that point. And so to have a church, though, that said yes and then knowing, looking back, that a huge part of our model is partnering with local churches here and overseas. I mean, that is, that's the lifeblood of what we do. Jesus left one mechanism in place for this world, and it was the church. And the church is very broad definition. And it's not just this one place or that place. It's, it's everywhere, you know. And so for for us, you know, we love this place. Um, you were the ones that were there with us to start. And for those of you who don't know what Trash Mountain is, um, basically, in a nutshell, we work with kids and families that live in trash dump communities. This is where, um, you know, people as young as, you know, two and three years old start working, and they, they pick through uh, garbage. They go into the local landfill, and they look for anything they can eat, sell, recycle, whatever it may be. 
And you can imagine there's a lot of problems that come along with that. It's not something we see here in the States. We have policies and regulations and laws to keep that from happening, um, but most developing countries do not. And so it's very widespread, um, and we've had the privilege to, to work in six countries at this point, and we're, we're, we're growing, but it's also, it's, it's an overwhelming experience, you know, and for us, when we hired Tim as our discipleship director, we knew that was the core of everything we want to do. You know, we do nutrition, health, you'll hear a lot about that later, all the different programs we do for the kids, but also discipleship is the core of what we exist for. It's to share the gospel, it's to share Jesus' love with those who don't even a lot of times know what love is. They've never experienced it. They feel like they're part of that trashed up. And so when we had him come on, one of the first things that he did was he formed, uh, he had an idea about doing a leadership conference uh, over in the Philippines. And for us, Philippines, we actually have five communities that we're working in. So in terms of one country, we have the most going on uh, in that country and a lot of leaders. And so he wanted to do a, a conference where we came over and really just poured in. We bring pastors over from over here, other leaders, and we pour into the leaders over there. And so we were over there, and this was actually the second year. It was about a year from last Sunday ago. Um, we were over there on the second, second trip to do the Equip Conference, and <clears throat> we... Uh, Everything had been going good. You know, it was a great week, and, you know, we got to Sunday, and for me, you know, I was with a team. Part of our team was in one place, and part was in the other, and we were at this community called San Mateo, and we had had a church um, up in Kansas that had uh, basically had funded us putting in a fresh water well, and San Mateo had no fresh water, period, and so this was a big deal for the community, and we got to the end of church, and we were going to this celebration, you know, and so on our way over there, Pastor Jomar, who's our, our partner over there that we work through, he kind of grabs me as we're walking over to do this, and he said, hey, um, the mom of that little girl I told you about this morning, um, she may be there. Her house is literally right behind where we're doing this dedication, and what he was talking about was there was a little girl named Claire Wynn um, who was five years old, and she had died from respiratory uh, complications that week, and um, so I was aware of that, but then, you know, we're there for this celebration, so this happy, you know, moment where, you know, fresh water is in a community that doesn't have clean water, you know, and so we're doing that, and then literally right at the end, um, Joe Mark comes up and he says, hey, uh, Michelle, um, her mom, asked if you could come and pray with her. And so, honestly, just on the other side of the wall is a completely different kind of meeting of people. It's, it's a wake for Clarewin. And so we walk into this house, and you have a glass-top coffin um, with a five-year-old girl laying in it, and I recognize the family. And, you know, you get to know these families, and they're such incredible people. It's such a difference, such a contrast to the, the, the dark, just horrible place that these trash dumps are and the kind of things that they produce. And to see this, you get very overwhelmed. And I didn't really know what to say. I just I looked at her, and I, you know, gave her a hug and said, I'm sorry for your loss, but then asked what happened, you know. And, and she went on to tell me that, um, all her kids, all five of her kids have respiratory issues from the fumes and smoke that they've breathed in at such a young age at the dump because they usually burn uh, from the bottom up in these dumps. And, and um, you know, she had a lot of issues and she started getting worse with her, her lungs and her breathing. And so it got bad enough that she had taken her to the hospital that last week. And most of them have never been to a doctor. Um, a lot of them don't even really understand the concept, at least as kids took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, well, this is, this is actually a fairly easy fix. Um, it just takes a certain type of inhaler. It's, it's, it's kind of a form of asthma, but a little bit more severe. But this, this inhaler, as long as she has this, she'll be fine. And so um, they cost $7. And her mom could not afford the inhaler. And so she 
had to make the decision to not get that inhaler. And she has four other kids, and the way she explained it was, I, I, we have barely any income from the dump, and we couldn't do it. And then a few days later, she had another attack, and she died. And she goes on to, you know, tell me, you know, one of the most emotional things I think I've ever gone through sitting with another parent, being a parent myself, was, you know, the last thing my daughter said to me was, I love you, Mommy. And in her mind, it was her daughter saying this, and she can't do anything to help her. And it was $7. And so for me, I'm going through all sorts of different things in my head. And so I, I, I prayed for her, didn't really know what to say, you know, but I, I got done praying and I just looked at her and I said, hey, your other kids are going to have the medicine they need and it's going to be right away. And please spread the word in this community that the church is there for this kind of thing. Always go to Pastor Jomar. Tell everybody they can go to him. It will be taken care of. These are, these are things that we want to help with. This is why we're here. This is what the church is. And I apologized to her one more time and, and just gave her a hug and, and um, you know, said, we're here with you. And we walked out. And as I walked out, I was going to the car, and I, as someone was trying to talk to me, and I just kind of pushed them aside and just needed, needed to be alone. And I was very upset. And for me, it was asking a question like, where were we? This is such a simple thing. Where were we at during this? Why hadn't we known that we could have done something about this? Why didn't she know that the church is there for this type of situation? And I honestly wanted to throw my hands up and quit. This is one of those kind of backbreaking moments when you have all these things that happen over time, and then this was like the straw that broke the camel's back, and I just was, I was over it, and I kind of threw my hands up, and, but instantly... I just think God laid a story on my heart, and it was when Jesus walks into the mom's home where her daughter had just died, and he raises her from the dead. And obviously, I'm not Jesus. I didn't have the power to go in there and do that for Michelle's daughter. But what I did get from that was it was like Jesus was standing there looking at me saying, you know, she's with me now. Don't worry about her. You are here for a reason. You can't quit. You're here to represent me and represent my love and how I care for these people. And when I look at our ministry, it's, it's been such a roller coaster of things, but every time God has stepped in, he's done something. He's always been there to make sure that everything moves on in ways that we could have never done on our own. But how do we stay on course when something like this happens? Because we're human. We get upset and we... We don't know what to do. And there was a word that I heard in a, a sermon not too long ago, and it was grit. And I'd never heard the word grit in a sermon before. You know, I just think of, you know, like the John Wayne movie, True Grit, from back in the day. And I, you know, but when I looked it up, it was defined as the firmness of character with a passion and persistence for the long term. Grit is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And as the church, I think we should be gritty in all aspects of what we do. And even... Though the modern word grit is not found in the scripture, you know, there's not a Greek word for grit. And I think it's obvious, though, that we can look at Jesus' life and say he was very gritty. He just went all the way to the end, just never slowing down, never letting up. And his disciples were the same way, even though they had some of our good human hiccups along the way. Um, I think we can, we can kind of look to them and see how they followed what he was saying. And sometimes it's hard for me to compare myself when I see Jesus do something. It's like standing next to a girl laying in a box. I couldn't do anything about that. But we can do something about the future. We can know these things are there.
I want to look at a specific passage um, written by the Apostle Paul. Um, he was a pretty gritty individual, and he, he wrote it to uh, Timothy, uh, one of the other disciples, uh, in his second letter. And to set the context of this passage up, basically Paul was sitting in prison at this point. He had gone through more than we can imagine, I'm sure more than even was recorded, and a lot of scholars think that he was probably barely recognizable at this point in his ministry because he had been beaten and put through so much that, I mean, there's no way he looked the way he did when he started. And he had endured all that. And he wrote this. He said, well, and so while he's sitting in this prison cell, he writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. He said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And it's interesting to me, there was a, a Bible professor, um, I heard say something to the effect of, he had studied Paul's life for, for many years, and he said that he believes this was the only moment in his ministry that he could have written those words because he had actually, he had made it to all the places. He had finished the race. He had met the course. He had gone to all these different, he was kind of the first missionary, and he had gone to all the places that God had shown him, and he didn't see any other places in the future that he was supposed to go. And I think for him, he knew this was it. He knew he had finished the course. His life had been spared through all these miraculous interventions before, but he wasn't expecting that this time. That's grit. Paul never ceased. He never gave up. He didn't become complacent. He didn't throw his hands up like I was feeling like I needed to do at that time. He just he didn't show that weakness, even though he talked about that weakness all the time. And if we start to believe the lie that everything is fine and that the world's great and, and things are just moving right along... I think that's dangerous. It's not that we have to sit and mope all the time and feel bad and, and, and be emotional about things, but we should be passionate about what God has given us and what he's put in front of us. So the question is, have we settled or are we running a race? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What race are you supposed to be in? You know, a lot of people may look at that and say, well, maybe it's, it's you know, uh, securing my own home or a good job or getting married or... Um, going to college and understand there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. Those are all great things. But the difference in what I think Jesus taught us was these things are eternal. Nothing I just listed is necessarily eternal. And so when we, when we see this, we need to really look at what is the finish line and what actually makes a difference for God's kingdom, not necessarily our own. And personally, I didn't know any specifics of my own race that I was supposed to be in. I just knew I was supposed to be following Christ. I was a pastor at the time, and but I just had all this unrest in what I was supposed to be doing, and it was him preparing me for this call, and I didn't know it till I stepped on a trash dump in Honduras, which is an odd place to find your call. I can tell you that. It was not something that I was seeking, at least not there. And I did find myself in bad situations. I found myself in places that we should have been killed. The second dump community we went to, Michael and I shouldn't be here. Yet God stepped in. And so we've gotten to see him do things that I just can't even really explain with words unless you experience God in that way. And for an adrenaline junkie like myself, I can tell you there's no better thing, no better rush that this world has to offer than to see God step in and move right in front of you in ways that are impossible. It's an incredible experience. Henry Blackaby is a famous theologian. He made a statement once and he said, to watch where God is at work and join him. It's probably one of the most quoted statements in this last hundred years. That's what keeps me going in this call. 
But one of the biggest questions that comes up is, how do we join him? It's not as simple as just saying, I mean, you might be sitting there, it's like, well, yeah, I'm in with Jesus, but what does that mean? How does that play out? And even for our ministry, how does that play out? When we started this, we started by making a video, just being a voice for these people, but what was that going to mean long term? Because we had seen something we could not walk away from. And so I want to have Tim come up here, and he's going to talk a little bit about what it looks like for us joining God where he's at work. Good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How you doing? Uh, I, uh, as JJ mentioned, uh, I was pastor here for a little over a decade and actually have known JJ and Chris, gosh, for 20 years at least and just go way back with both of them and uh, just phenomenal people. This is, a, this is my heart, you know, this church is a great, great place and I still remember um, it, the timing was so strange because JJ and Chris had both come on staff here and that summer right after they started we met with Brett and with Michael and uh, just we're hearing about Trash Mountain we didn't know that Trash Mountain was just getting started we knew it but I don't think we understood the extent that it was just getting started Uh, and I remember them telling us stories in Honduras that um, there are uh, in the trash dump there there are uh, parents who require their little young daughters uh, to prostitute themselves out to the trash truck drivers for sometimes 25 cents or 50 cents. And those little girls know that if they don't come back with X number of uh, coins uh, at the end of the night, that they're going to be in trouble. Uh, because for whatever reason, I guess the parents think that's how they're supposed to make ends meet. I don't know. But I remember us hearing that and we just went, yeah, okay, we're in. How do we stop that? How do we make that go away? And these stories are so powerful. And part of what Trash Mountain does is we tell stories because stories uh, really kind of change, they motivate us. They capture our hearts. Um, Stories move hearts, but strategy is what changes lives. So we try as an organization to really have a, a foot firmly placed in both camps. We want to tell stories, but we also want to be sure that we are very strategic in what we do and, and very focused in what we do and that there really is a plan. We don't just go in and, st- and start uh, throwing around uh, American resources, but we really want to try to understand the problem. Um, I have a friend uh, recently who came up to visit us. They live in Dallas, and he and his wife came up to visit my wife and I there in Kansas, where we live now. And they wanted to hear more about Trash Mountain. So we shared with them, and their response was, uh, this bothers us. I mean, they were just kind of, I mean, do you feel that right now? It's, it's kind of heavy. You hear this, and you think, how is this even possible? In my frame of reference, I don't, I can't, I can't justify that. I can't make that make sense. And he, so he said, you know, this really bothers us. And I said, it should. I mean, if you have a heart, this should bother you. And so his next statement was, we should do something about this. And I said, we are. This is the story of Trash Mountain Project, that people like you get a chance to be a part of changing the world. And listen, look at me, no joke literally changing the world for people who desperately need their world changed. It's really not hard. It's really not expensive. How many of us in here have $7 in our pocket? How many five-year-olds do you want to save? 
It's really not complicated. It, it, it really, it's amazing how you and I, and I don't, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm an American. I'm a proud American. I love America. And yet, the money that we spend, we don't even think in these terms of how much further your dollar will go when we send it out of this country to a very, very needy place. We're going to talk a little bit about the mission of Trash Mountain Project. Um, we, we exist to create Christ-centered environments for children and families that live in trash dump communities. Uh, actually, we're going to have, we have a table in the back, and John, who's, who's on our board, John DeMeo, is here, and he's going to be back there, and I'm going to be back there. Uh, we have an annual report. This is a great booklet to pick up because it doesn't just have financials about Trash Mountain. It also has our story and our strategy, and most, most of what I'm going to share with you this morning very quickly uh, is contained in this booklet. Uh, on page six of this booklet, and you probably won't remember that, there, there's a red page, okay? That's what you need to remember. There's a red page like this, and that's what I'm going to talk about just for the next few minutes because really, Trash Mountain strategy uh, it really is, there are five steps to it. And so when we encounter uh, in these uh, developing countries, in these third world countries that we go into, uh, and when we find trash dump communities, which again, kind of blows your mind, how is this even possible? Well, when you have a large city in a third world country, guess what? They produce a lot of trash, just like any city does. But it's It's not always the government that's in charge of the trash dump. Sometimes you're going to hear a story in just a minute about sometimes it's private citizens. Sometimes it's not very nice people who are in charge of it. And so when you have a third world country where people are desperately poor, and then around these larger communities you get these trash dumps that kind of just happen, um, it's just kind of a natural part of the process that these poor people are going to go and live around the trash dump and then go into the trash dump and scavenge. They're going to dig through trying to find things that they can sell, things they can eat, uh, things they can recycle for money. So our first goal, the first step of the process is to discover unreached trash dump communities worldwide. Uh, to this point, we've identified about 250 trash dump communities. What that means is around the world, uh, we believe that we can look at a map and we can point to a map and we can give you, we don't just say we think there's a community here. We say to the best of our knowledge, there is a community there and this is the name of it. Uh, about 250 that we know of. And yet, for every one that we find, there seem to be rumors of five, four, five, or six more. Uh, so it is very conceivable that there are more than a thousand trash dump communities around the world. There aren't any statistics. You know, they don't have a trash dump community uh, conference in Orlando every year. This is not like an organized thing. It just kind of happens. And so part of the thing with Trash Mountain is we're trying to find organizations who are experts on trash dump communities, and we can't find any. So we kind of feel like it's up to us to try to get our arms around the problem and try to be educated. How does a trash dump community in the Middle East look different from a trash dump community in Latin America or in Southeast Asia? We're trying to get our arms around that. Uh, Of these communities, we have personally visited 47 of them. Uh, We have a team that goes out and does research and development. And actually, Brett's going to tell you more in just a minute about that. Uh, They're going to be going to Kenya next month. Uh, this, this is a part of our process. Uh, and here's what you need to know about this. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are living and working and dying in trash every day. And we just don't think that's okay. We think we should do something about it, especially when we see how easy it is to do something about it. So we get this opportunity to bring hope. And that's a really cool, it's, it, it's almost addictive when you get to go be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to people who desperately need it. 
The second prong of our approach is once we've discovered, when we feel God has led us, uh, we try to establish a foundation uh, through relationships with indigenous leaders. And this is what that means. It means in every Trash Mountain community that we work in, Trash Mountain doesn't send somebody to go live there and be in charge of that work. Not that we think that's wrong, not that we think that's bad. That's just not the approach that we take. We want to work through local Uh, leaders in these communities. And so one of the things we pray for is that God will not just lead us to trash dump communities, but lead us to trash dump communities where there are already men and women who have passion, who have heart, who are there doing the work, and they have a vision for what's going on there. And we just want to come alongside them and encourage them. This is part of the reason why, and some of you maybe haven't been able to get your mind around this, it's part of the reason why I live in Kansas, and yet I'm a missionary to Honduras and the Dominican Republic and the Philippines. It's because for our approach, and and specifically the people we're working with, it's not best for us to go and live there. It's best for us to empower them where they are, uh, and this is a whole different discussion, like this is a whole other church service to talk through what does that mean and why is it that people who live in trash dump communities, that, that's what's best for them. But just trust us, it's true. So what we're here for today is really to talk about Serve 1000. It's an initiative uh, that we are undertaking. This is what it boils down to. In 2016, we will be providing care every month for about 1,000 children around the world. And so every month, we're going to have sponsorship dollars that go out. And, and by the way, every single dollar that you give us for community sponsorship, uh, anybody want to guess how much of that dollar goes overseas? All, all 100% of it, yeah. You give us a dollar, we send a dollar overseas. And our goal every month is to be able to provide care for 1,000 children at different levels. I have this up here. Uh, we have this kind of three-level approach, and we don't have time to get into this. But basically, they're at different levels. Level one is kind of the lowest level. And what that means is it's very likely that there is some kind of infrastructure around these children that they don't have the same amount of need. They still have an incredible need, but it's not the same amount as children who are at level three. Also, you can see at level three, there are 550 kids. That's the largest amount amount of kids who need the largest amount of help. They need not just to be fed on a very regular basis. Uh, they need schools to be built in their community because they don't get anything like that. They need health care. They need nutrition. Uh, they need discipleship, which is something that we provide at every level. Uh, we want to make sure that there's either a church or some sort of a ministry in that community where they can not just have their bellies fed, but they can have their souls fed. Amen? Because that's the goal of what we do. Everybody say amen. Just to make me feel better, yeah. So that's a really important thing. So that's what we do. That's kind of we discover, and then, and then God opens doors in these certain situations that we can then begin to establish a foundation. And then we kind of move to the next level, which is building. We're going to build facilities, programs, and leaderships in the communities where God uh, has led us to kind of move for, forward in the process and go to that next step. Uh, we're going to build facilities, programs, and leaderships that's needed to serve. We're going to build facilities, programs, and leaderships. Say it with me. We're going to build facilities. It's just common sense. If you've got a community where kids need to be fed, let's say you've got a community and you have 300 kids there. This is a very realistic idea. You've got a community and 300 kids need to be fed every day, maybe a couple meals a day. What do you need to feed those kids? Think through it with me. Use logic. You need a facility. You've got to have a kitchen. I mean, could you cook for 300 kids in your kitchen? Probably not. You need a commercial kitchen of some kind. 
You need programs, which means we need to regularly send them the funds so that they don't just have a nice shiny kitchen. They actually are able to go and buy the food and prepare it. And it's not just the the materials for the programs. It's the people who run the programs. You need somebody in some of these communities. They're showing up very, very early every morning so they can start prepping. And it's crazy to watch them do it with such love. They know they're feeding children. And so these locals will go up every morning and they're cutting onions and they're cutting chicken and they're doing everything they need to do, getting the rice ready because they know they're going to feed kids. That's what programs are. And then leadership you got to have somebody to kind of guide the whole thing, keep it moving in the right direction. That's not us. That's the local leaders that we work with. So these are the three things that we're trying to do. Now, this is the reason I took all that time to tell you that. Listen. Because Serve 1000 is about community sponsorship. This is about every month we're going to be providing programs for 1,000 kids. In other words, the buildings are built. In these communities where we need to do this work, the buildings have been built. So what we need is people to come alongside us, people like you, and say, you know what? I'll give you $30 a month. I'll give you $50 a month. I'll give you $5 a month, whatever that looks like, so that we can provide the programs to keep things going. For $30 a month, uh, about $29 a month, you're not just going to provide meals for a child. You're also going to provide education for a child. At whatever level, level one, level two, level three, whatever is needed for that child, you're going to help provide health care for a lot of kids. You're going to provide, you're going to make sure their church stays open and all the bills get paid and the pastor gets paid a salary. All that's wrapped up for like on average $29 a month. That's the best $29 you're probably going to spend. And maybe you can't do 29. Maybe you can do half that. Maybe you can do 35. Hey, don't get caught up in the math. If you can sponsor 1.4678 kids, you knock yourself out, right? Because every dollar makes a big difference for these kids. So the fourth prong in this approach is that we fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples. We want to always, always, always address the spiritual aspect of what's going on in these communities. Bottom line is this. When we go into a community to partner, it's always with a pastor. It's always a pastor with a dream. And so in the process of turning this pastor into almost an entrepreneur where now they're running a feeding program and maybe a school and maybe all these other things that they had a heart to do, we also want to come alongside them and say, how can we also make you a better pastor? How can we help you be more effective at what you really have a heart to do, which is to make disciples? Uh, It's cool. I I love this statistic. Uh, Last year, more than 200 leaders received some kind of formal training, uh, encouragement, or resourcing. Uh, More than half of those uh, men and women who are community leaders actually received help more than one time last year. So it's not just about putting food in kids' bellies, even though that's a really important thing. Uh, We also want to put hope in their communities. We want to create that kind of environment. And then the last step of, well, actually, let me tell you a story. I I forgot. We have to take the time to do this. This is Pastor Rooney. Uh, He pastors just north of Manila uh, in a place called Santiago City in the Isabella province. And and Pastor Rooney's a really neat guy. And this community that we um, partner in, the San Jose Trash Dump community, uh, they didn't really know anything about who God was. And so one of the first things they asked for is we felt God leading us to partner there. And this was really Brett and John. 
on who are a part of this process, that as we felt God calling us to partner there, uh, we wanted to plant a church. There was no church, and, and this was a new thing for us, to be in a community where there was no church, and yet they were asking for a church. So we partnered with the Wesleyan Church in the Philippines to plant a church there. We uh, kind of fund that, but they provided the leadership for it, and they provided Pastor Rooney, who had a heart for that community. So I got to go into this community. Uh, we had built a building which was maybe, maybe half the size of this center section here. Not very big. This is the beginning of what we're going to do there. And <coughs> excuse me, about half that building is actually just a room where Pastor Rooney and his wife and his two kids live. And the other half of the building is a porch where they have church. It's the coolest thing in the world. So I got to be there literally just a little over a month after they started having services. So I walk out there thinking, (coughs) they said, you know, come visit with us and we want you to speak in this church. So I get the chance to go and I'm thinking, okay, they just started and they're in a trash dump community. Like if they get 15 people, I'm going to be really excited. I'm going to be really proud of them. I walk up, there's like 75 people crowded into this little shelter, and they're all like ready to go. They're excited to have church. So then they show me, I have this picture that I snapped with my phone. They show me this thing in the ground. It looks like some kind of concrete bunker, and it was kind of off to the side. So I said, so what's this? And they said, actually, when we built the building, one of the things we asked for is a baptistry. So they have this little kind of basic structure And they have a baptistry. He baptized in in those five or six weeks between when they started the church and when I showed up. He baptized 35 people at one time. Like, not literally. They all get in it. Like one at a time, but at one time. How incredible is that? We get a chance to be a part of that. And it really doesn't cost a lot of money to make a huge, huge difference. So the last step in our process, which is what we're working through now in some of these communities, is what we call support. We want to support local ministries to lead to self-sustainability. What that means is this. Listen, think with me. We may send them resources every month. But ultimately, that may not be the best long-term plan for them. You've heard the statement, you give a man to fish and you teach him to fish, right? You've heard that. Here's the interesting thing about it. In a lot of these communities, those pastors agree with us. They don't want handouts. They want to genuinely learn how can they be self-sustainable. So we do things like aquaponics, which is a whole nother church service to talk through that, where basically we raise, you can raise fish and raise plants in kind of this system, and then you, know, you start to harvest vegetables and you start to harvest fish, which you can then either eat or sell. Uh, so we're looking into large-term commercial aquaponics systems. We actually have a biologist on staff who is looking into this and researching this and starting to develop this program for us and in addition to the, Things like farming and and animal husbandry and and just kind of the sky's the limit. But we want to create sustainability because the neat thing about this is if we have a community where we're working and say we're sending them resources every month, if we can kind of dial up their sustainability, their self-sustainability, we can dial down the resources. The, The work never stops, but we dial down the resources. And the cool thing is if those are dollars that you're giving us to give to them every month, we then get to send your money to a new place the same money, and go do a new work and go do something different. 
So that's kind of the approach that we take. Uh, I, I kind of want to close with another story, and then you're going to watch a video actually about Kenya, uh, which is a really powerful video. Um, pastor Joni tells us in Honduras, he's the pastor, he's the first pastor that we partnered with, and, and JJ and I both met him years ago, and just a phenomenal guy. He tells us that when they first encounter these kids uh, on the garbage dump, uh, and they ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's like, that's a question that you ask a kid, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, these kids will tell you that they want to be uh, the trash truck driver. I want to drive the trash truck. Because in their world, he's at the top of the heap, right? They're all scrambling to try to get the trash as it comes off the truck. Well, he's driving the truck. And he pushes the button that dumps all the trash. I mean, this guy's like wealthy, right? He's powerful. That's kind of depressing. The cool thing is Pastor Joni tells us that as they get kids into the program and they've, they've been in it for maybe just a year or two, as they start to ask them, what do you want to be when they grow up? Then they tell you, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a social worker. This is one of the things that he hears a lot of. They'll say, Pastor Joni, I want to do what you do. I want to help people who live in trash. I want to help people who live in these communities. Now, look at me. You know what that is? That's hope. That's hope. He didn't just give them some food or an education. Or, he gave them hope. He gave them Jesus. Stories move hearts. The strategy changes lives. Check out this video. So uh, we went over to Dandora, and it was... It was at some level unlike anything we'd seen, just because it, it, from our research, we believe it is the biggest trash dump community in the world. Um, we put 150,000 people on the video that surround it, but we heard numbers anywhere up to 300,000 people um, that surround this. And if you can imagine that, surrounding a landfill, it's insane, you know. And one of the other really unique things about this place was that um, we run into crime in most of the um, communities that we work in, but... This one specifically, we had been warned. Um, Micah Albert, the photojournalist that took us over there, kind of met him through some really crazy circumstances, and he had won actually a, a World Press Award for a photo he took in that dump. And, and so he had been looking for something like this for a while, and he, we went over with him, and, and um, he, had, uh, he had told us, you know, this is a little unique in that it's run by the Nairobi crime cartel. And so this isn't somewhere, it's, it's not that they own it, but they run the whole thing. And so even to have permission to go into the dump, you have to talk to them. And it was a very real thing. You don't just walk into this place. It won't end well for you. And so we had been warned by others in the community, even a, the pastor that we had met there. And, and, but we went ahead and, and went, and we had been connected with someone that Micah had met on his previous trip there. And, and um, I want to tell you this story in closing just as a, you know, kind of a, a different element of, of what we do, because sometimes it's easy to see the kids and say, yes, we're in. I mean, they're kids. We can understand they, they need that kind of help, but what about everybody else? When you say 150,000 people, obviously that's not all kids. And so we, we had uh, set it up to meet with Tiger, um, is the guy's name, and he was basically the boss in, in Dandora. And we met him really early in the morning before sunup because we had, you know, guys that were going to do video and, and, and photography and everything. And, and so we met him, and he came straight at me, and he shakes my hand. And he says, I'm Tiger. 
I was like, well, I'm Brett, you know, and so we, we kind of started talking, and then um, he said, let me show you my place, and he spoke really good English, so it was kind of nice. We could actually communicate fairly well, and, and uh, when he said, let me show you my place, he wasn't talking about his home. He, wasn't, he was talking about the dump. Like, this is what he ran. He was the guy here, and so he wanted to show us his place, and so we start walking in, and, and uh, it kind of got into where he started just, I guess, kind of bonding with me. I'm not sure what was happening, but he, he grabs my arm, and he's like, you lift weights? And I said, yeah. And he's like, what do you bench? You know, and so we start having this conversation. I'm thinking, great, we're kind of working up a bromance here, you know, and this probably isn't a bad guy to have on your side. And so we keep talking, but then his questions start getting more and more um, personal. He starts asking about my family and different things, and then finally he stops me, he looks me in the eye, and he says, are you a pastor? I was like, hmm, what's the right answer here? And I said, well... Yeah, yeah, I was. I said, I'm more missions work, but yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he said, Jesus? I'm like, yeah. He said, I believe in him. I said, really? And he said, yeah, but I've done too much at this point in my life. There's no way he'd ever take me back. And he kind of looks down and walks off, and I'm like, wow, what the heck just happened here? And over about a 10 to 15 minute period, which is the courage time it took me to work up to go and talk to him about this. And I walked up to him and I just said, hey, Tiger, I was like, you know, the Jesus I know will always take you back. It's like, that grace isn't limited. And he looks up at me, he said, well, even if you're right, it's too late for me now. And so it clicked in my mind. I mean, if you're a high up boss figure in a large crime family, you don't just walk away, you know. And he walks off, and, he, and I was just left like, what do I do here? This is a brand new scenario for me. And so we spent about an hour kind of watching everything, and we had been told about these trucks that actually come from the airport. All the leftover food from flights is dumped into these very specific trucks, and everyone knows which trucks they are. And so when they show up, you just have this swarm of people that kind of come out of nowhere. You know, you got kids and uh, just people everywhere just swarm these trucks when they show up because they get food from them. And whether they resell it in the community or they just eat it straight from there, um, they show up for this. And, and we had, you know, Tiger had said, you need to see this, and so did Micah. And so we went over there, and, you know, John's um, over there, you know, shooting some video of it. And we were trying to stay back a little bit because it was very chaotic. It was one of those, like, eh, there's just intense situations that you don't get too close to. And so we were watching this, and I was just kind of standing off the side, just taking it all in, and, and Micah comes up to me, and he said, did you look underneath the truck? And I said, no, I, he said, come here. And so we went over, and I looked under, underneath the truck, and basically, all the kids that were maybe eight, nine years old and below, that were too small to fend for themselves in the back where everything was dumping out, they were all basically like cheek to cheek lined up under where the truck opens up in the back, and were catching fluids and, and food, and You kind of get to a point where you think you're not going to be surprised by something, and I'm sorry I get emotional. It's just I don't process this stuff much unless I'm talking about it. And then something tops what you've seen before, and we're watching this. And the only thing that broke my con- concentration was I hear someone yelling off to my side, so I look over, and there's this guy, and he's pointing at me, and he's yelling, and he's flipping me off, and he's walking towards me, and he's got a group of guys with him, and I'm like, 
this isn't good, you know, and I'm watching this go down, and so, of course, I immediately start looking around for Tiger, you know, like, hey, buddy, where are you at? And I couldn't see him anywhere, and in my mind, I start going through this whole scenario of, okay, was this what this was all about? Was that whole conversation we had not really the conversation I thought we had? Were these guys with him, whatever might have been going on? And as they got closer, he had an overcoat on, the main guy, and he starts reaching into his overcoat, and so I step back and kind of square up with him, and I, you know, I was having this, what do I do here? You know, I'm, do I fight him? Do I run? Do I just take whatever they have? And, and, you know, last second as he's about to pull whatever this is out, and I'm going through this in my head, I hear something, and it's Tiger, and he comes barreling over and jumps in between us, and he leans over and he whispers something in this guy's ear, and the guy just turns a different color. He turns pale and said something to his buddies, and they all took off the other way. I'm like, you know, Tiger turns around and says, we need to go now. Grab the other guys. We need to get out of here. So got everyone together, and we're walking off. And I, you know, said, hey, what, what just happened? And he's like, oh, nothing. And I'm like, no, buddy, something happened, you know. And I said, what did he have in his coat? And he said, well, he, he carries a machete in his coat. And I said, he said, he doesn't really like uh, outsiders, and he was drunk. And, you know, it's, it's, it's no big deal. And I'm like, and so I pushed a little further, and I was like, well, what did you say to him? He said, well, I told him that you're my friend, and he knows what happens to people who mess with my friends. And I looked at him, and I'm like, did you just threaten to kill that guy for me? And he just kind of shrugs and keeps walking, and Tiger's um, in this picture. Um, and, uh, you know, we uh, are walking out to the car, and I didn't know if it was culturally acceptable or not, but I gave him a big hug and just said, thank you. And, and um, he said, no problem. It's been nice, nice to meet you or nice, nice knowing you. And he starts turning around. I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, and he, and he says, he goes, well, I won't ever see you again. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you white people never come back. And I looked at him and I said, Tiger, I can promise you we'll be back. We'll see you again. And can we take that as a, as a promise? He said, we'll see. And I just looked at him and said, well, remember, we're friends. I'll be back. And we're actually going here in about five weeks. And we'll get to see what Tiger's up to. But seemingly, this crime boss figure had saved my life and sent me back safe to my own family. And you, you look at that and you think, wow, <laughs> your whole paradigm starts to shift. You know, this enemy, so to speak, the guy who causes so many of the problems, just became an ally who can do that except God? That was a crazy thing to have happen, and it's really just become this thing that's changed my whole, I mean, I'm still processing and not sure what to think of it. But what's our finish line? How do we get to that place? And it's very simple. Tim mentioned it. We actually have it in those steps of things that we do, and it's the Great Commission. Jesus had just risen from the dead and put the exclamation point on his own ministry, and he said this, he said, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we've seen that over and over. He is with us always. That command is our finish line. And it goes for everybody that we come into contact with, whether it's here in Winter Haven or it's in a trash dump in some other country. I think if we step out of our comfort zone and we go into a place that maybe is not necessarily where we would typically want to be, 
we get to see God show up and do things that we cannot explain, and we have gotten to watch that over and over and over in this ministry, and if anything, it's just intensified every single year. We need you to run this race with us. Tim mentioned the, the Serve 1000 thing. We've never, I, my least favorite thing in what I do is, is talking to people about money, but you know what? It's actually gotten easier and easier because when you deal with things like standing next to a dead kid in a box and you know that there's a very simple answer for that, it's not a hard thing to ask people to join us in what we're doing. Like Tim said, we have everything set. Everything is moving, and I, I ask you for your help without hesitation. And I don't give you any kind of guidance in that even. We don't, I don't want to talk about numbers. That's between you and your family and God, and I, you, you do that. But the simple fact matters, we have a thousand kids in seven communities that need help. And I'm kind of a bad executive director sometimes. I kind of make my a couple people on my board a little upset because we'll get calls. You know, hey, we got 70 more kids that need, to, need care. Can we take them? And what are you going to say to that? That's very hard to say no to. And so I'm kind of, sometimes I just say yes and I explain later and we, we deal with it. But that number's growing all the time. We have a woman who's doubled her ministry in, what, the last few months over there. So technically, it's probably more like 1,150 kids at this point. But we just need people on board with us. So if you have questions, we'll be back there. We'd love to ask or answer anything that you, you want to bring up. But um, this is something God's in. And again, that's, I hope that's the message that comes through. That's why we tell stories. We want to tell God's story, not our own. And none of those things I've mentioned really had much to do with me, if you didn't catch on. There's things that he's doing that are just incredible to be a part of. So we need the church to be the church and to join us in this race. Let's pray.